0: turn to the book of 2 Kings. Our text this morning is in the main, chapter 9, although we're going to begin with the end of chapter 8. It is a a long text, as our stories have been today, more than 40 verses. So what I will do is read um, the initial portion as we begin, and then as uh, we have opportunity to come from point to point to the text... We will pick up the reading of God's Word again. So if you'll please give your attention to the Word of God at Second Kings, chapter 8, beginning with verse 28. This is the very Word of God. It is inerrant. It is sufficient. And it is authoritative. He went with Joram, the son of Ahab, to make war against Hazel, king of Syria, at Ramoth-Gilead. And the Syrians wounded Joram. And King Joram returned to be healed in Jezreel of the wounds that the Syrians had given to him at Ramah, when he fought against Hazel, king of Syria. And Ahaziah, the son of Jehoram, king of Judah, went down to see Joram, the son of Ahab, in Jezreel, because he was sick. Then Elisha the prophet called one of the sons of the prophets and said to him, Tie up your garments and take this flask of oil in your hand and go to Ramoth-Gilead. When you arrive, look there for Jehu, the son of Jehoshaphat, son of Nimshi, and go in and get him to rise from among his fellows and lead him to an inner chamber. Then take the flask of oil and pour it on his head and say, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then open the door and flee. Do not linger. So the young man, the servant of the prophet, went to Ramoth Gilead. And when he came, behold, the commanders of the army were in council. And he said, I have a word for you, O commander. And Jehu said, To which of us all? And he said, To you, O commander. So he arose and went into the house and the young man poured the oil on his head saying to him thus says the lord the god of israel i anoint you king over the people of the lord over israel and you shall strike down the house of enj on jezebel the blood of my servants the prophets and the blood of all the servants of the lord for the whole house of ahab shall perish And I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free, in Israel. And I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. And the dog shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would make this word applicable to our lives, that it would take root in our heart, that it would bear much fruit. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. As you may know about me, one thing is that I like just most about everything that has to do with food. I will even watch cooking shows on television, not because I'm interested in how things are made particularly, but because I like to look at the food and think about eating it, especially when it's good food being made. And one show that I watch, and the food is so good in it that even the kids will watch it with me, is a show on Food Network called Throwdown with Bobby Flay. The story is it's this sort of jack-of-all-trades master chef, and he goes and he finds the person who makes the best wedding cake in America, and he challenges her to a wedding cake bake-off. And then he goes and finds the best barbecue in America, and he challenges them to a barbecue cook-off. And the thing that makes it interesting is they approach whoever is the best at barbecue or Jamaican jerk steak or whatever, and they say to them, we're going to do a special on you. And that's how they get the camera set up and everything. And then at the last minute, Bobby walks in and he says, Are you ready for a throwdown? And they know they've been had. Because now they're put on the spot and they're in a battle for their culinary lives. The difference between that vignette of life and what we have today is, is that people can avoid confrontations with other people. It's at least possible, if you could stand the embarrassment, to say, no, I'm not ready for a throwdown. Um, I'm leaving. I haven't seen it yet, but it's possible. But when God comes to execute his will in the lives of those who especially have rebelled against him for long times, there is no avoiding that throwdown. Even when it comes in the instrument that God sends. And here this week we're going to see a quite violent chapter, a quite bloody chapter, a scary chapter in many ways. But at the same time, I would encourage you, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, then this chapter should be a comfort to you to know that in the battles of life, God is on your side. So let us then take a look and see what chapter 9 holds for us. The first thing that we will see is the word coming. The word as it comes. And then we will look and see how the tension builds in this story. The word comes, and then the tension builds. And then, the axe falls. The word comes, the tension builds, and then, the axe falls. Our text begins, as we've said, here at the end of chapter 8. You may recall last week we looked a bit into the story of Jehoram, who's also called Joram in this chapter. See, even ancient Bible writers, historians, try to avoid confusion. There's a Jehoram of Judah, and there's a Jehoram of Israel. And when they mention the Jehoram of Judah, they say, well, you know, Jehoram in Israel is also called Joram. Unless you think that the Bible is wrong, turn to your right or left and you'll see someone who's a Daniel, who's also Dan, a John, who's also Jack, or a Robert, who's also Bobby. So, that doesn't bother us with our names. It shouldn't bother us here. So, Joram, king of Israel, and Ahaziah, king of Judah, are come together at Jezreel. Circumstances have brought them here. Circumstances have brought them here in, by way of a war and a battle. They are out fighting Hazel. You may recall last week, Elisha anointed Hazel king over Syria and wept because he knew the harm that would come to Israel through Hazel. Well, we're starting to see that take place. Judgment is already coming down the pike. The kingdom of Israel and Joram and Ahaziah are looking and they see the light at the end of the tunnel, and it is an oncoming train. Hazel is coming against them with his army, and Joram is wounded. And so he goes back to Jezreel to recuperate. To picture where we are, Ramoth Gilead is across Jordan. It's about in the center of where Israel is, but way to the east, and Jezreel is a good distance to the west, in Israel proper. So, Syria has come down to fight Ramoth-Gilead, and the king has gone back to the back line to be healed. And his good buddy, king of one year, Ahaziah, his kinfolk now, now that Ataliah, daughter of Ahab, is queen in Judah, comes down to give him comfort and to see how he's doing. And so by pure coincidence, both of these kings are in the same spot at this same time. Well, they're in the same spot, but there's no coincidence here. You see, the house of Ahab has already started to see the rumblings of judgment that is coming down. The word is coming down on Israel, and it is coming inexplicably. It is coming down in a way in which is very difficult to understand. There's a coincidence at hand. Joram might wonder why he got wounded, or why he needed to convalesce, And why would he need to go back to a place to get healing? You may wonder why he picks Jezreel. Does anyone remember the town of Jezreel? We've seen it before. We've seen it in First Kings 21 in a story about a garden and a man who was murdered by Joram's mother and father. So it just so happens that all of these things come to place. Great events are at foot. There is war out in the land. So both big and small, all things are pointing toward a showdown at Jezreel. Elisha is now taking upon himself the task of judgment. These two men are gathered, and Elisha takes upon himself the opportunity to say to his servant, Go and go find Jehu. Anoint him to be king over Israel. This is the second time that he will see someone anointed. You may recall this is the finishing of the work of Elijah. Some of you remembered that when we talked about Hazel last week, that in 1 Kings chapter 19, Elisha, not Elisha, was told to anoint Hazel, Jehu, and Elisha, and that they would be the instruments of God's judgment against Ahab and Israel. This is now coming to fruition. From 2 Kings chapter 2 through 2 Kings chapter 7, God has been very patient with Israel. Elisha has been a source of grace and mercy to them. But now, he is finishing off judgment. There's a lesson in this for us, even though we're not kings of Israel. The lesson is, we ought not to presume upon God's grace. Perhaps, you today, when you travel, gentlemen, you turn on things in the hotel room that you shouldn't watch. Or perhaps your internet history is filled with items that should not be there. But six months, a year, two years have gone by, nothing's happened, there's no madness that's come from that, no conflict. Perhaps at your job you skim a little off the top. Perhaps you're a little bit overindulgent with your speech as the ladies gather around, and you think, well, nothing's wrong. Nothing bad has come of this. You see, this lesson here today starts by telling us not to abuse God's patience. You see, kids, just because you've gotten away with something and mom and dad haven't seen it for a week or a month doesn't mean that's the way it's going to always remain so. You see, it is not a wise thing to presume Upon the patience of God. So, in the midst of this word coming down from the servant of Elisha, it comes inexplicably in ways of coincidence, in ways that are difficult to understand. But it also comes inexorably. It comes without halt. There is no stopping the word of God. This servant comes down to Jehu, and it's likely not the first time that he's seen the commanders in the army. He has a bit of a reputation. As a matter of fact, we'll see later, Jehu tries to play off on that. Says, hey, you know this guy. He's not right in the head. He's been down there before. And, you know, it doesn't surprise us that to commanders of an army of a nation that's been led by Baal worshipers, a prophet of God would be seen as a little bit off. Maybe that describes the way people look at you at the office. You're a little bit off because you do this praying thing at lunch. Or because you talk about what you've done at Bible study. Or you waste your Sunday going to church instead of sleeping in. You see, that's what this man of God is faced with. As he comes up with Jehu, he has a bit of a reputation. But he must be known because otherwise he wouldn't get an audience. And he comes in and he says, I have a word. And we go through this biblical pattern of, I guess technically you would call it the drill down. He says, I've come here for a word. Well, to who? To the commanders. Well, to which one of the commanders? Well, to you, Jehu. Let's go out in the back room and talk about it. Reminds us a little bit of what happened with Achan, doesn't it? When he was to be punished, they pulled aside the clan and then they pulled aside the family, and then they pulled aside Achan, drilling down because God knows exactly who he wants in this situation. And so the servant of God, acting on Elisha's behalf, pulls aside Jehu and follows the orders of his master. And he anoints Jehu as king over Israel. This, The way this is done should awaken biblical echoes in Do you remember another king that was anointed and said, Oh no, not me. I shouldn't do that. His name was Saul. And then you may remember another prophet who went out in secrecy and anointed another king. That would be the next king of Israel, David. And so he anoints Jehu, and this echoes of what has gone throughout the Bible, God specifically choosing Jehu for this purpose. And this prophet is not just there to play kingmaker because he has some words for Jehu. He says, I'm anointing you as king over the people of the Lord. There's a responsibility here, Jehu, and your responsibility is to strike down the house of Ahab, your master. He essentially says, you are going to fulfill God's will that he has announced and been preparing for many years. So long that my master, Elisha, wasn't even given that order. It was his master, Elisha. This has been many years coming, but no one can stop it. Not Syrians, not Ahab, not Jezebel, no one. The punishment is coming down. So the word of God breaks in to this camp at Ramoth Gilead. And the next thing we see starting in verse 11, is that the tension builds. The tension begins to build. When Jehu came out to the servants of his master, they said to him, He's all well. Why did this mad fellow come to you? And he said to them, You know the fellow in his talk. And they said, That is not true. Tell us now. And he said, Thus and so he spoke to me, saying, Thus says the Lord, I anoint you king over Israel. Then in haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. The tension begins to build here. The tension builds as we see God drives history. You see, it is very common for us, especially in Presbyterian circles, to talk about God as the one who is in control of history. Isn't that true? But you see, our text here tells us something more than that. It's not just that God is in control of history like a landowner putting up fences to keep wind or dirt or grass or hay in. No. God is driving history. He is in charge of where history is going. His sovereignty is not a passive one. He is in charge of exactly where he wants history to go. That's a comforting thought to the believer, isn't it? He's not just watching over... God is not just over us somewhere watching us. God has ordained all of the circumstances for the good and the comfort of his people. Now, the catch there for us is is that that is according to his definition of good, not ours. But God is in control of history. And so we see some familiar elements begin to crop up. The prophecy says that the house of Ahab will be made like the house of Jeroboam and like the house of Baasha, and that every male shall perish the language here is very similar to the same way that God dealt with Jeroboam, with Baasha, and with Ahab. He's showing that politics really doesn't matter at all. If you think there's change that comes out of politics, you don't know God. or you don't know politics. Because it's God who is directing things. He takes dynasties, one after the other here in Israel, and he dumps them on the trash heap. Everything is according to his relationship with his people. This is how God works. And you notice here that the emphasis is God's. It is told to Jehu that he will strike down. You will, verse 7, strike down the house of Ahab, your master, Jehu will do this in the context of God's action. Jehu will do this because I may avenge, says the Lord, and I will cut off, says the Lord, and I will make. It's God who is directly in charge. He is not waiting for Jehu. He is intervening in the lives of his people. Especially comforting to us is the fact that God remembers what has happened. To Naboth, The language that is used here is, is very similar to language that's used in another place in the Bible. You see, God says that I have seen, I have seen what has gone on. And it's just like the language in Exodus chapter 3, verse 7, where God sees the suffering of his people and he comes down to rescue them to redeem them. God is driving this history and he is in control. And Jehu doesn't like it one bit because at first he tries to shrug it off. He says, oh, that guy's crazy. Now, I want you to imagine putting yourself a bit into Jehu's shoes. Someone walks up to you and says, by the way, you are to be president of your company. Tomorrow, you call all the shots, you get the big paycheck, you're in charge. By the way, got to run. And he's gone. What would you do? Well, I'm guessing the it would not be the first thing that you would do, would be to run into the corner office and tell the boss to get out of your desk. Because you're in charge now. Well, who put you in charge? Well, you know, the crazy guy, the guy we used to make fun of. Where is he? Well, he took off, but he put me in charge. So get out. You see, he's trying to downplay it here. He's trying to make sure that he's in control. He doesn't want to let things get out of hand. And so he says, well, you know this guy, he's a nut. He didn't really do anything. And they look at him. Now, again, you have to picture what's going on in your mind's eye. He's saying, this guy didn't do anything. Drip. 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 Drip comes the oil. And in a small room, the guys are like, wow, that is some fragrant oil. I mean, you can't be within 15 feet of Jehu and not know he was just anointed. So unless there's a porta shower in the back room with some herbal essence that he gets all the anointing oil out, everybody knows exactly what's happened. And they say, you are lying to us, Jehu. What did he really say? So Jehu pauses and he says, well, he told me that I'm king over Israel. And you can almost imagine, he's maybe cringing, he thinks someone else is going to, why should you be king? I should be king. No, he should be king. No, wait a minute, we've already got a king. But something amazing happens. Something that you don't see every day. A group of generals who are used to commanding people around, who are probably arrogant, and who have been loyal to the previous king, immediately and in unison say, Long live the king! That's a sign that God's in this. That doesn't happen by accident. You've got a better chance of getting unanimity out of a board meeting than a group of generals. And Jehu's taken aback because they blow the trumpet, they lay out their clothing, They say, Jehu is king in Israel. Now, a sidelight would be that that means that Joram isn't exactly the poster boy for the army. They don't exactly like him. And so they're seizing upon this opportunity. Okay, so well and good. What happens now? The history of Israel we've seen has been full of these sorts of things. If you're a student of the Roman Empire, you know that half of the wars that were fought in the Roman Empire were not against Israel barbarians or Germans or Parthians, but they were one Roman general fighting another Roman general to figure out who could be emperor. So where do we go from here? Well, they say, don't let anybody out. Cancel all the furloughs. We don't want any word of this to get out. And Jehu says, I'm going to go and take care of this. Now, do you notice the change in Jehu? from verse 11 to verses 14, 15, and 16. He goes from being, well, I don't really know what this guy said. He's crazy. Let's ignore him. Two, I'm in charge. Nobody goes anywhere. Settle up the horses. It's a bit of a change. You see, what's happening here is Jehu has got it into his mind that he could pull this off now. should remind you a little bit of the smirk that probably came across Hazel's face when Elisha told him that he was going to be king of Syria. This tells us something else about how God works in history. You see, Jehu is the type of guy that would be ready to knock off a king. So is Hazel. But you see, it's God's word that sets everything in motion. It's God that starts this. It's God that has this going to a certain place. God is not just using history. God is making history for his own purpose. So the question then comes to you. Is this how you view history? Are these the glasses that you put on when you read a newspaper? that God is the one making history. Have you these past few years thought about our relationship with China, not in terms of geopolitics and satellites, but in terms of what God is going to do in the underground church movement in China? Have you thought about these stories of the pirates on the east coast of Africa and not thought about Saudi ransom? but about what God is doing in the resurgence of Christianity in Africa that Pastor Hope talked about last week. You see, that's the lens that we need to have. God is in control. God is pushing this along. He is doing whatever He will, and no one will thwart Him. There's a next step. A scary step. You see, it's one thing to say God's in charge of everything, God raises up kingdoms. He tears kingdoms down. He's in charge of history. And then it's the next thing to say, God is in charge of my marriage. Of my family. Of my job. Of where my kids go to school. Of what house I buy or don't buy. What car I drive. Of how I spend my money. That's a bit disconcerting, isn't it? Because, you see, if God makes big history, God makes little history, too. His hand is upon his people, guiding them ever along that path to the celestial city. You see, that is the God that we serve. He's not a kindly, somewhat dopey, a little bit out of it gentleman. He is the one that knows your deepest fears, your deepest needs. And it doesn't matter whether those fears are next week's test, or how do I put five babies into college, or where do I retire? God knows, and he knows you, and he directs you. God is in charge of history, and so we see this tension build as God directs the course of history. And it takes its next step up the ladder, next rung, notched. As Jehu begins to drive his chariot, the tension builds. You can almost imagine if this were cinematic. He says, my chariot, good man. And they bring it, and he says, gather up the troops. We're riding out. It's almost like one of those posses that goes out in a Wild West movie. And a cloud of dust kicks up, so much so that they're driving the, I don't know, 40 or 50 miles from Ramoth Gilead to Jezreel. And then there's the watchman, he's up on the tower. You can imagine, Jezreel watch duty is not exactly very exciting. It's kind of like, well, maybe lighthouse duty in Nebraska. Not much happens. This is in the center of Israel. You know, the battle is way off there. But, you know, he's been trained. He's been told that, you know, one if by land, two if by sea. You know, this is the sound, the early warning test. You know, it's those emergency test systems that come up on your TV screen and all they do is annoy you because you know they're always false. And he looks out. Says, hey, there's a little t- cloud of dust now. Wait a minute. That cloud's getting bigger. Hey, Joe, there's a a huge cloud of dust coming down the road there. What do you think it could be? Joe probably says, Well, you know, there is a battle off that way in Ramoth Gilead. The Syrians were fighting our army. Well, do you think it's the Syrians? Do you think it's our people? What do you think it is? Somebody tell the king. So they go down and they tell the king, and the king says, Well, let's figure this out. Send a rider. And the rider shoots out there. And the rider comes up and, He sees the commander of the army. He sees Jehu. The watchman is standing up there, and he says, I see a company, in verse 17. And the man on horseback is sent out to say, Is it peace? Now, we have heard this phrase over and over again, haven't we? And hopefully I'm starting to drill it into you that that doesn't just mean howdy-doody. This means, are we on good terms? Is there some kind of conflict? Is there some big calamity? What is going on? And so the rider goes out there, and he comes up, and he's probably relieved that it's Jehu and not Hazia. So he's figuring he can keep his head. And he says, is it peace? And you can imagine Jehu, he says, what do you have to do with peace? Get in touch." Okay. And they keep going. Now the watchman says, not coming back, boss. Still They're still coming. It's a big cloud. All right, send a second rider. So they send a second rider. rider comes up and he says, Is it peace?" And Jehu says, Get in line! Oh. Now the clouds get bigger. There's a dust cloud. And now the king's saying, Okay, wait a minute. We don't know what's going on. I sent two guys. They did not come back. This is not good news. They're still coming as fast as before. And the watchman says, Yeah, he's driving like a maniac. What do you think it is? The king says, well, got to find out. There's no sense in being scared of something. You don't know what you're scared of. And So he gets up, and the king of Judah goes with him, and they go out to meet him. Now, don't get the impression that they go out to him on a horse, and they don't know what's going on. They take their bodyguard out with them, because right now they're a bit concerned. This is where the somber music comes in, in the, in the film. And so they come out, and they go, and they see, and it's Jehu. And so now, there's a mixture, perhaps, of relief and concern. The first thing that probably comes through Joram's mind is, not the Syrians. The second thing that comes through his mind is, Jeroboam not taking over the kingdom, Baasha knocking somebody off, Zimri knocking somebody off, my dad getting knocked off. Whoa. And he says, Is it peace? Jehu utters one of the sharpest lines of judgment in the Old Testament. He says, What peace can there be so long as the whorings and the sorceries of your mother Jezebel are so many? This is not designed to win hearts and minds. So much so that Joram turns around and skedaddles out as fast as he can. It's not fast enough, but he knows what's coming on. Because you see, Jehu has said there is no ability at all to compromise here. You can compromise on all kinds of things. My kids even know that you can compromise in food. You can go to a restaurant and get chicken and get waffles in the same place. You can go and get kibbles and bits for your dog, but you know what you can't do? You cannot have compromise between God and Baal. And so Joram knows his number is up, and he rides off, and Jehu draws his bow as hard as he can, and it's almost deja vu. Just like Ahab gets stuck by an arrow, his son gets stuck by an arrow. You know, if we think about this, it shouldn't surprise us. You see, the safest place to be in the world is in the will of God. You said that to yourself? Perhaps you've had to live it, maybe. You know, we've talked about this as we send sons off to Iraq, or to Afghanistan, or to South America. And I know many of you have said, well, the safest place for them to be is in the will of God. And the most dangerous place to be is outside the will of God. Because even if you're the king, and even if you're in the rear, and even if you have a bodyguard, you are not safe from the judgment of God. He finds you. You can put up all kinds of pretense. You can have everybody love you. You can say how much you read the Bible talk about how much you pray, but if it isn't a reality in your life, if you do not know the Lord Jesus Christ, that will not protect you from judgment. It's only the reality that saves. Not anything else that we build up. Well, the tension builds to this crashing point, and then the axe begins to fall. Now, if you looked at this passage, you saw the extreme irony. I think there's a sense in which we can say in sanctified reason that God does have a sense of humor. Because exactly where Joram and Jehu meet is a piece of land owned by a man formerly named Nabal. It's not lost on Jehu because as Joram falls down to his death, he looks out and he says to his friend, he says, You know, really, this has been coming for a long time. He says, Take him and dump him on the land of Naboth. Throw him on the plot of ground, in accordance with the word of the Lord. Because he says to his friend Bidku or excuse me, Bidkar, he says, Do you remember when we were in Ahab's army? When we were lieutenants, young bucks and you remember when that mad prophet came out and told Ahab that God was going to take vengeance on him for the death of Naboth? He says, we've just seen this. This has been a long time coming. There's no escape. There's not even any escape for Ahaziah. He just has the misfortune to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it's not really a misfortune, and it's not a place and time. Because you see, he is Ahab ish, isn't he? He's married into that family. We saw that last week. He runs his kingdom like an Ahabite. And you see, God's punishment sweeps him up in it as well. So God takes a certain irony in seeing that his vengeance for the death of Naboth and the death of all of the prophets that happened under Ahab is atoned for. But Jacob's not done. He gets back on and he rides. And now word has gone through Jezreel. Someone's come up to the queen mother and said, doesn't look so good. Big cloud of dust. Two watchmen went out. The King went out. And he's dead. I don't know what we're going to do. And Jezebel does something very interesting. She goes, and she goes to get her cover girl cassette case. She dolls herself up to the nines. So much so that the description is really of what a prostitute would look like. Over makeup. You can almost imagine this. Now imagine, you know, an elderly-ish woman trying to look like she's 25. Putting on all this makeup. Now, but we lose... The emphasis here, if we think she is trying to, you know, say to Jehu, come up and see me, big boy, maybe I could be the queen. No, she's not trying to be his girlfriend. Because the first words out of her mouth are this. This, These are not designed to win hearts and minds or influence people either. She lifts her face out of the window and she says, Is it peace, you zimri, murderer of your master?" That's not exactly how you're doing, big boy. What's she doing here? You see, what she's doing is she has made a decision in her mind that she's a queen. She's going to go out like a queen with a bang. You think I, I think we do ourselves a disservice if we think that those who don't know the Lord aren't capable of courage aren't capable of ignoring what's around them, aren't capable of a flashy end. They are. Courage in the face of adversity doesn't save you. Flash and bang doesn't save you. Again, we have another example of someone who doesn't have a relationship with the Lord because she's basically said, well, you're just like this other Seven-day wonder. You remember Zimri? He'd kill his master. Look it up in the books. Seven days was how long he was killed. You too, Jehu. And Jehu doesn't miss a beat. He's not concerned with that. He says, Who's with me? And there are a couple of eunuchs. And there's again another irony here in the judgment, because the Baal cult was a fertility cult, it was a prostitution cult. And the people who have the least to gain from that are eunuchs. They just happen to be there. And you can imagine, they're, she's leaning out the window, they're looking at one another. Just throw her down! And so they threw her down! And this queen, who had such power, everyone was afraid of her, killed the prophets of God meets a crisp. end. She falls out the window, hits the pavement, and then the horses run around. And then Jehu shows how much concern he has for her by ordering lunch. He goes in under the veranda and has lunch, and then it comes across his mind, well, you know, maybe we ought to bury her. You know, after all, she is a blue blood. She is the daughter of a king. And they go back, and guess what? Another prophecy's been fulfilled. It was said that Jezebel would not be buried, but that the dogs would eat her. And so they do. And there's nothing left of her, but the text says her hands and her feet. It's a grisly end. Don't lose sight of one other thing. This is good day for the people of God. Not a bad one. This is God's justice and his judgment triumphant. This is God protecting his people, his weak ones that have suffered. You see, when God chooses to judge the wicked, we shouldn't judge God for that. We should rejoice that his justice is seen. You know, up until that point, there is a little saying that I would have. That Saul slash Paul is always to be preferred Herod. you know what happened to the enemy of God, Saul? He became Paul. And the enemy of God, Herod, was eaten by worms. But God will choose who will be the Sauls, who will be the Pauls. And right now, judgment is raining down. So what does all this mean, briefly, in conclusion? You should remember that the Lord is always at work. He is never asleep. He is always working toward the consummation of His Word, whether it be by way of judgment or by way of mercy. And it doesn't just come about or happen to to happen. It's something that He is guiding and moving toward fruition. That should be a fearful thing to anyone who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ. The end is fixed. There is no skirting it. There's no forgetfulness. There's no extension. But at the same time, it should be great comfort to those who are found in Christ Jesus. That God is in control, that he is working all things together, and that his judgment upon sin and wickedness is the vindication of his people and his church. Let us- Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have indeed shown yourself mighty, powerful. We pray, Lord, that you would give us the wisdom to show your mercy, but to also acknowledge that when your judgment comes, that you are self. We ask this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who bore your judgment, that we might receive your mercy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen.